0: And just like we sang, the Lord is faithful to His people. The Lord is faithful to His promises. And so what He promises, He fulfills. And that's what we're considering as we come together these three weeks, these three Wednesday evenings during December. We come together and we consider three births. We consider three people in history that were promised and then expected and then the Lord used His gracious interruption. Miraculous, overwhelming interruption as He injected His grace into human history in unexpected ways to unlikely people. We have these three births. We have these three remarkable births starting with Isaac that we saw last week. Then this week with Samuel. And then next week with John the Baptist. All three of these men born to women who are barren. In an overcoming barrenness, the Lord tells us one thing. He has to solve our problem. He has to answer our need. It has to come from outside of us. His salvation has to break into our history because we cannot achieve it on our own. We cannot produce it. We cannot design it or plan for it. And so He interrupts us in unlikely ways. And if you listen for it, as you think about these three births, you'll see the twist. You'll see the kind of odd irony as we consider the incarnation. Think about three births to barren women, all looking ahead to the incarnation that comes to a virgin. And all of these three leading up to the incarnation, the Lord says, I am able to overcome the unlikely. My power is abundant and I can do marvels for my people and I can overcome the unlikely. But then that leaves us wanting. That leaves us waiting because we know our sin is impossible. Our separation from Him is impossible. And so even in the virgin birth, even when Christ comes to us, born to a virgin with no husband, having never known a man, He gives us the signal. Not only does He overcome the unlikely, He overcomes the impossible. His grace to us is abundant. His ability is endless. And His kindness for us reaches all the way in and does what we need. It does what we've asked for. And so in all of these, the Lord invades us with His own provision. And He gives to us a new living one. Now, before we read our passage, I want to give you a little background. I'm not going to read our passage first. I thought we'd, we'd kind of step back and get some context for it. And the background you need isn't backstory on the characters. You don't need to know more about Hannah and Eli. You don't need to know more about Samuel at this point. We need to know the background of Scripture. The background of Scripture as a whole is worship. Sitting in the background behind everything you read whether it's explicit in the text or the idea behind the text, is worship. From the very beginning, when God made the heavens and the earth, when he made Adam and Eve and set them in the midst of the garden, it was perfect. It was paradise. But not just because it was lush, not because it was idyllic, not because it was cool, there wasn't any humidity, that wasn't it. It was because they lived in his presence Maybe we should say it a different way. Their entire existence was in the Lord's sanctuary. They were free and unhindered in their fellowship and their worship with God. And then moving out all the way to the other end of Scripture, all the way to the end of time in Revelation, when we see all things made new, the picture we're given is that the garden's been remade. And now the Lord has joined the garden and His presence to the temple, so that now his worship is fully restored. Now it's unending, it's unhindered, it's perfect and joyful, and it's not at risk. And so all the way from the beginning to the end, we have this shape of worship that informs how we read scripture. And everywhere in the middle, we know two things are true. We are always being told that we are broken worshipers and that we have broken worship. And all the way through, we're being told that the Lord has promised to restore both. And so, as we leave the garden, as we find ourselves tonight somewhere in between those two, we find that we're still worshipers. And we find that we never left being worshipers. When we left the garden, we didn't stop worshiping things. Our character didn't change as worshipers. In fact, we left because we broke our worship. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden because they turned worship on its head. The Lord had given him himself, and they decided that they wanted to be gods. They wanted to be the objects and the ends of their worship. And so they left the garden with their heads hung low, but they never stopped worshiping. Their hearts never stopped looking for things to latch on to, to hold on tight and to worship and adore and devote themselves to. And this is our story too. They left with broken worship, and their worship moved in broken, illegitimate ways. And it's the same today. Our worship is still broken in the same ways. From the very time that we believe the serpents lie... All the way up until tonight, we just confessed it a moment ago, we said it together, that we have believed superstitions, and that our hearts have formed idols for us to worship, to adore, to devote ourselves to. And so what we need is good news that the Lord is restoring our worship. And this is the history of Scripture. This is the story, the grand story that Scripture gives to us, not just that we're broken, Not just that our worship is lacking, but that the Lord is restoring these things. And so we see glimpses of it. You see it in Abraham. In Abraham, you have a man who comes from broken worship. You have a man who belongs to his father's house, who lives among the Canaanites with a tradition of pagan worship. And so the Lord calls him out of that, draws him to himself, makes him belong to the Lord to worship him alone. And then we see it again in Moses in the Exodus. The Exodus isn't really a story about slavery and liberation. It has those things in it. It speaks to us of those things. But fundamentally, the Exodus is a story of the Lord liberating us for his worship. In the Exodus, the, the message that he sends to Pharaoh through Moses is not, let my people go so that they can be more comfortable. It is not, let my people go so they can find better careers, better vocations, enjoy a little piece of the pie. The message is, send my people out to me so they can worship me. And then we see it all through the prophets, through the rest of the Old Testament. Anytime the Lord sends the message to His people through His prophets, it's because they belong to Him as His worshipers. And every time He issues the call for repentance, And every time he sends them a message of correction, it centers on their worship. Even when the indictment involves their spoiled relationships with each other, their injustice and inequity towards each other, the Lord says over and over again, this violates my worship. This distorts my worship. You are my people. You belong to me for my praise. And so that I might give my grace to you. And in all of these things, the Lord tells us the story over and over again. Ever since the garden, our worship has been broken, and we have been broken worshipers. And at the same time, it highlights His promise to us that He is restoring us as both. And so now, as I read our passage, I'm going to read it out of order. I'm going to start in chapter 2, because I want us to see the brokenness first. I want us to see the problem in its extreme, and then I want us to hear the Lord's answer to it. So first Samuel chapter two, starting in verse twelve. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men, they did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling, with a three pronged fork in his hand, he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or cauldron or pot, and everything that the fork brought up the priest would take for himself. And this is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. And moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest servant would come and say to a man who was sacrificing, give that meat to the, to the priest for, for him to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, only raw. And if the man refused and said to him, let him burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, you have to give it Now, and if you will not, we will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. And now, for Samuel chapter one, starting in verse nine. After Hannah's family had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and then they went back to their home at Ramah. And Hannah, Hannah's husband Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. When we read these stories, when we read these two passages, we can see only as much as we set up to see in the context. We can see only as much as we set ourselves up for with our context. And so if we limit our context to chapter 1, then we very rightly see the author's emphasis that the Lord has been kind to Hannah because she was a barren woman and now he's given her a son. But if we broaden our context a little bit, if we see more than just that first chapter, if we look at the whole book of Samuel, then we see more than that. We actually see the Lord's kindness to Israel. We see the Lord's kindness to His people in giving them a new priest who despite their hardness of heart and callousness will anoint for them a king of His choosing. But there's more. If we broaden the context even beyond the scope of the book, if we move all the way back so that we can see the entire canon of Scripture and all of history, then what we see is another one of the Lord's gracious interruptions. We see the Lord interrupting our brokenness, our broken worship, and restoring to us new, lively, and vibrant worship that overcomes our old, callous, numb, oppressive worship. We see the oppressive worship very plainly. In the first passage I read... In chapter 2, you can see the oppression in the temple. Eli's sons are horrible. The passage says they're worthless men, but they stroll right into the temple, they walk up to a worshiper, and it's like the playground when you're in second grade. They bully him. They tell him that he has something they want, and they're going to take it, whether he gives it to them or not. And so they extort and they mug so they can fill their own bellies. And their sin is gross. Their worthlessness is plain to us. And I think it's because their sin is so grotesque that we actually miss something else in the worship. We miss another piece of oppression in the two texts I just read. In comparison, Eli is not nearly as bad as his sons. And this is not meant to pick on Eli in particular, but to use him kind of representatively. This is the state of Israelite worship. When we get to Eli, we see him sitting in the door of the temple, a man who spends his days dedicated to the Lord's worship, dedicated to serving the Lord's worshipers. And so Hannah walks in, Pitiful woman, and she cries, and she sobs, and she cries out to the Lord, asking for mercy. And so Eli meets her with a tongue lashing. Eli does nothing but rebuke and condemn her. And I think really, given between the, given the choice between the two, I think the saddest piece of worship that we see actually comes from Eli. Not because of what he does do, but because of what's missing. In Eli, we see something drastically lacking in worship at the time it's joyless, it's devoid of all compassion for broken worshipers, which is what we are, which is what we know we need. We must have compassion because we're broken, we need tenderness. Not an iron fist. Not a backhand to the jaw. But Eli gives none of this. Worship in the temple has become nothing more than ritual and propriety. And so the Lord interjects. The Lord gives a new priest, a new worshiper to lead worship, a new living one who knows him and who exercises his compassion for his people. But honestly, where does that leave us? That was Samuel. On his own, Samuel doesn't do you and I a lot of good. We are broken worshipers. And if we're honest, we know that we have also joined some of this oppressive worship not just in the ways that we treat others. We've actually joined in this oppression as we've turned our worship to ourselves. As we've turned our worship to lesser gods, we have put things up to serve us because in their empty promises of wealth and power and reputation and pleasure, these things tell us that we can be worshiped. And so we become our own captors. We have put ourselves in bondage to the kind of empty worship that holds us shackled. It both devours us and enamors us with empty promises, but we've contented ourselves with it. It only half delivers on any of them, but we've agreed to settle for lesser worship of lesser things. And in so doing, we cheat ourselves with joy that evaporates, and we withhold compassion from those who need it, and we lie to ourselves and say that we need no compassion, we need no tenderness and no care, we will manage our own worship, and in so doing, we will be worshiped, and we will be fine. So where does Samuel leave us? I said it a second ago, he's not enough for us. Samuel on his own is not enough good news to spend the month celebrating. Samuel's great and all, but on his own, he's not really good enough for us to give up our Wednesday nights. A single priest in the 10th century B.C. for Israel doesn't help me at all. It's no good news to me at all unless it's a picture of the Lord's faithfulness that points me beyond itself. And this is the good news of Samuel. This is the good news in what the Lord is giving to his people in new worship. The good news of Samuel is that it's a true story, but it's only a shadow. Samuel only points me beyond himself to see one who would come, not only to restore my worship as an activity, but to restore me as a worshiper. it is is the one who came to build us into a temple filled with his presence by the Holy Spirit. And so this story is not the good news itself. This story is only the good news inasmuch as it points us past itself to the incarnation when the Lord interrupts us and invades our history to give us new worship. And to remake us as His worshipers. Because we have no way of rescuing ourselves. There's nothing we can produce and nothing we can achieve to pull ourselves out. But like we sang before, God has promised full restoration. And God is faithful to His promise. He will restore His full worship to us. And He will restore us as His fully devoted worshipers. He doesn't do it with better rituals. He doesn't do it with better worship regulations. He invades us finally and authoritatively in the incarnation. And so we come to celebrate the incarnation because we have not been forgotten. We have not been deserted and left to languish behind veneers of hollow worship. The eternal word became flesh and lived among us to rescue us and to fill up our worship and to make us His delighted worshipers forever. And this is good news we're celebrating. Amen. Father in heaven, You have looked on us as a people made up of broken worshipers. And so we tell You plainly that we are a people with empty and broken worship. You have turned our hearts and affections to other things ultimately to serve ourselves. But you have not forgotten us. You are the Lord who remembers us. And you have not forgotten your promise to rescue us and fill up our worship. And to see us filled up with more of your worship as your worshipers. Oh Lord, would you remind us of your goodness as we celebrate the incarnation of the Son. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is none good besides You. There is none worthy of worship besides You. And there is none who can fill up our worship and remake us as the temple of Your worship besides You. So continue to change us. Continue to be kind to us. And fill us up with more of Your worship, more of Your praise, more adoration. Do these things for us because no one else can. We give you thanks for the unique and mysterious beauty of the Incarnation. Amen.